Hi, good morning. My name is Marika Grose. I'm a senior staff attorney at the New York Civil Liberties Union and an adjunct professor of law here at Fordham Law School. And uh, the topic for today's panel is viral videos. Uh, so it should be a very exciting, interesting panel. Um, I have two confessions to make before we start. And the first is that I do a free speech and privacy law, so I actually know very little about IP law. Uh, and the second is that uh, really there's nothing that bothers me more than when people mass email me a link to a viral video of cute cats or kids biting other kids' fingers or whatever it is. <laughs> But as someone who works on free speech issues, um, and especially as they interact with new technologies, I understand the societal importance of viral videos um, and, and the value and newsworthy value that they can have. So I'm very excited to be here to moderate a panel of experts on these issues uh, and very uh, excited to learn from them. So um, I will introduce our panelists for you. Um, to my left, we have Charles Lego, who is a partner at Amster, Rothstein, and Evanstein LLP. A physicist by training, he litigates in all areas of intellectual property law, including patent, trademark, and copyright law, with a special emphasis in complex litigation and appellate work. And as co-chair of the amicus committee of the New York Intellectual Property Law Association, Mr. Maceda has been principal counsel or additional counsel on many amicus briefs in some of the leading cases to the Federal Circuit and to the Supreme Court. And to the left of Mr. Maceda, we have Veronica Rosas. She is a rights and clearance associate at ABC News. Uh, she is the only non-lawyer on the panel and has worked at ABC for seven years. Ms. Rosas negotiates, drafts, and reviews licensing agreements for the use of third-party content in ABC News programming and also acts as a liaison with the legal and standards and practices departments. Uh, and then to the, my far left, we have Josh Simmons, who is an associate at Kirkland and Ellis LLP. His practices focuses on intellectual property and includes litigation, counseling, and regulatory and legislative policy. Mr. Simmons advises clients on intellectual property matters that inter intersect with antitrust, computer and internet fraud, false advertising, privacy, social and social media issues, as well as contract, licensing, and domain name disputes. He's an active member of the ABA Intellectual Property Law Section and chair of its Copyright Division and Copyright Law Reform Task Force. Mr. Simmons received his JV from Columbia University School of Law. And my panelists wanted me to remind you that uh, they are all not speaking on behalf of their firms, their companies, their clients, their families, their friends, or anyone else. Use <laughs> our own here. Um, so as we start, um, I'm going to start with the first question, um, which is, what is your favorite viral video? Uh, and how do these issues come up in your work? Um, so maybe we can start with Veronica, actually. I thought you were um, So I can't remember a favorite viral video, but I can tell you about um, something that I was dealing with last week. I don't know if you guys saw it. Um, there was this gentleman, this guy walking around midnight on Central Park, and he was doing um, using this application, um, Pokemon application, trying to walk, and, and then at the same time he was live streaming um, using this uh, website. I can't remember the name uh, right now, but yes, he was uh, live streaming at the same time, and there's somebody came behind him and stole his backpack or stole something from the guy. So we wanted to use that material for one of our programs. And it was just as easy and an easy um, clearance because obviously we could only get permission for a video that the person actually shot. But once it's live streamed on that platform, it's complicated because we will need to actually get probably contact with the actual company in addition to the shop material to see if we can make it happen for our show. Um, now we work you know, 
news is so fluid, so when you get a request right now and half an hour later, then you know, broadcast. So it becomes an issue of having just not enough time to make the proper appearances. Um, so we defer to our attorneys to see if they can provide a written document for it. Both the women feeling so comfortable depending on how to make it happen, because you know you have to talk so much about it in order to keep it on the screen for so long. So we ended up just having to license the actual video, um, just being able to show the actual uh, moment when the person was being uh, robbed at that time. So we had to uh, stay away from the live stream website so that we can not infringe any copyrights or have any issues come on. Josh. Um, well, I love YouTube videos and all kinds of online videos. I'm a huge fan of them. Um, I, I think a lot of people, you know, you come stumble upon when they send you the link in the email. You go, oh my god, this is hilarious. I follow a lot of YouTube channels, uh, especially education videos. So that's sort of my genre because I'm very nerdy and that's what I like. Um, but in terms of viral videos, there was one, and it has two le interesting legal issues. One is it was about um, these guys doing flips into jeans, and they were and they were you know, going around town and doing all kinds of parkour type things into jeans, and that's how they were putting them on. Um, and it turned out it was actually needed advertising. It was actually Levi's had put out a commercial but put it out through YouTube, and it became sort of the, one of the earliest um, native advertising uh, commercials on YouTube. So it's a lot of fun, still enjoy it, but it also has that sub-issue of um, YouTube becoming a commercial entity and the people who are using it, both existing companies and people who need their careers out. We also have to deal with problems like um, copyright Thank you. 
Well, it's interesting. Um, it really raises two different issues because you've got one, the copyrightability question that <coughs> was talking about, and photography has always had issues with what's copyrightable. Um, if you go back to Weinstein um, in the turn of the century, you know, there was a question of, okay, well, maybe if you have the set dressing, that will be the copyrightable, but how could a photograph of just reality be creative expression? Um, and that's sort of where we're coming around to again, where he's trying to say, well, I did the set dressing, I set up the shot, and that last you know, click of the button is not the act of creation. Um, you know, I agree with the, the issue with regard to having to have a human somewhere in the process, but I'm not sure, I don't know the all, you know, all the things that he did here, I suspect he didn't sort of really set up a very specific photo that seems very natural, like looking at the camera. Um, but if he did, I don't see why he shouldn't have had copyrighted it if he was setting up a scene and the monkey happened to be the last trigger of the button. I, I think the problem that he had in that sense was, first he said it was a monkey selfie, and then he said, no, it was me. <laughs> it, it, it came to be a, we don't really believe you type issue. But yes, I mean, you know, that, that the thing that I always found difficult about copyright law is there's never a right answer. It's what the gut says of the person who's deciding it. Um, it's very much like uh, in patent law, an Alice decision, or, or in uh, pornography, you know, they know it when they see it. Um, I want to get the next example, though, for a second. And again, nice, I just want to have pictures for you guys because otherwise you're going to fall asleep, so forgive me. Um, you know, this is the Coleman baby one. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but the Harvard baseball team, when they were driving down to um, the game, they uh, were playing the Call Me Maybe song, and um, they started dancing to it. And this video went viral like crazy. This, this was all over the place. And it had a couple different issues in it. And, you know, one of the issues is the person who filmed it had, and and had their copyright in it, but they were using someone else's music. And that someone else's music they were allowed to use on YouTube because YouTube has the you know, blog monetize allow policy with content ID, but that only allows YouTube to use it. So when Veronica here has to decide whether she's going to put that online, she has two separate issues. One issue is she has to call the Harvard baseball player and say, can I use the video? see the kids floating around and dancing and the poor guy sleeping through the whole thing. And, and as you can see, it says, yes, he really was asleep. That was the, the, the caption that they put on it. But then she also has to get the rights for the music. And just because there was rights in the first instance where the viral video happened, doesn't mean there's rights in the second instance where someone gets the rights from the creator of the video because they still have those other issues. And um, I know Michael says, yeah, come to us, we'll give you those music rights. But, um, but uh, Michael represents BMI, so they license it. Um, but it, it's, just, it's just a whole other layer of complexity. And it goes beyond this, but just as an example. Veronica, maybe you should tell us how you got that. So sometimes it becomes easier to first have a legal team. So we, I work directly, I work in the rights and clearances department, handling photos and videos, and then we have another department who handles clearances for music. We work alongside our standards and practices department and our legal department. We have different, uh, different attorneys in the legal department. Um, the people that I deal with on a daily basis are show attorneys, so they are the ones who make that for use of animations for each show. So in a case like this, um, the easiest thing for us would be speak with our legal team first to see whether or not they would consider fair use for using some of the clips for the use in our programming. If that is not an option and producers still want to use the material, we can go ahead and try to clear the video. But if there's a lot of music in it, it's kind of boring just playing the video with no music. <coughs> So we have to um, reach out to our music department and they try to see what they can do about pro you know, obtaining proper clearances for it. We might be able to just broadcast it, we might not be able to post it online or in our different kind of distribution platforms. So it's just on a case by case and depending on how much time we have. Uh, depending on the 
value of the videos, and actually some producers even consider showing the video with no music, and perhaps later just show parts of it with music and then fair use doctrine if approved by a legal department. This is also an area where social media is actually more useful. So you're dealing with it going on television. So you're taking it out of the medium of social media and putting it in a new medium that's television. And that certainly involves a lot of rights clearance issues you employ, which is good. Um, but if you're actually in, keeping it in social media, you have actually more options than you would otherwise because all of the social media platforms um, take a license in and then they allow you to embed the videos online. So if you think of something like a Facebook post or tweet or even a YouTube video, you can get a little code that you put on your website and you can embed it. Now, they do this differently. So for example, Facebook and Twitter have um, a license, but they take a license in and they give a license out. Um, YouTube actually has a um, situation where they take a license and then have some interesting language about you're giving a license to anyone who wants to use it I have some meeting of the minds issues with that kind of contract language. But regardless, they have these licenses that are passing through the rights. You still have to do the parents on the music because the person who posted the video isn't going to own that. But in the circumstance where everything is owned by the poster, they've actually given a license. So a lot of um, companies, when they're doing online things, will embed the post right in there. And that's why you don't see as many screen grabs of social media. You actually see an active um, uh, embedded post with all the links in, in Involved. The person who, um, when you view it, that person gets the views, so they're getting the monetization. Um, so there's a lot of things that social media actually makes easier, um, but not when you're changing um, the, the, the medium of, of in which it's appearing. So Veronica, you mentioned fair use, and I, I'm interested um, in, in exploring that topic a little further with everyone. Um, we, we jumped right into some of the difficulties of, of licensing, but when and how do you decide when something is fair use, and what are some of the difficult issues that are coming up in that area? Um, well, for photos, we know they are really hard to cover, hard to um, fair use, so we're going to definitely try to get clearance as photos. Um, for video, it depends on how much time we have to clear it, depending on how much of it we just want to use it, if we want to use just a couple of seconds, or if they want to use over seconds mostly based on it, then um, you will have to, you know, reach out to the person who owns the material to proceed the licensing. Um, just because we, we have to work on it very quickly, uh, sometimes we try to always speak with our legal department first uh, to seek guidance on whether or not something is possible and what kind of problems they foresee. And sometimes they will tell you flat out, now go ahead and you have to try to clear it. So it's a it's not case by case really, but photos for the most part obviously very hard to be very used. And you can get into big trouble. Um, there was a case, Montreal's Cross Press versus Morrell um, in the Southern District of New York, resulted in a 1.2 million dollar damages award. Um, and what happened there is someone put um, their photos of the Haitian earthquake on Twitter. And then they were copied by another user and put on their Twitter profile, so that's bad in and of itself. Um, and then Ajans Cross Press reached out to the second user, not the author, and said, hey, can you use these? And they said, sure, give me some money. Um, and they used them and they gave them to Getty. And Getty made them available to all kinds of people who have these stock agreements and say, okay, you, you're capturing all the licenses. And they showed up all around the world. The photographer who originally took them woke up the next day and has morale and said, how are you all using my photos? Like, I didn't give you permission to use these. Um, many people settled, um, but Ajans Response Press and Getty went to trial on the issue and lost. Um, they lost both on a copyright infringement claim as well as on um, Section 1202 of the Copyright Act, which deals with copyright management information because the name attributed to the photograph was different than the name of the author, and there was enough for the jury to have that they should have known that the uh, person they got the license from, who was not in Haiti at the time, he was in the Dominican Republic, um, was not the author. And so it can lead to real liability. And I, I like using that example with people because a lot of social media teams say, it's just social media, it's ephemeral, everything's fair use, everything's public domain, we can all use it. And I think it really brings it down to earth and says, look, this is a real issue and you need to clear these things and talk to the right people. Um, if you go to the next slide for a second, um, I just wanted to point out that the newsworthy uh, notes. 
So, um, we all think of, you know, the, the videotaping of Rodney King's beating or the, or, or uh, all these recent things where everyone pulls out their phone when something happens as sort of like a new phenomenon of what we're dealing with. But uh, when Kennedy was shot, this Zucruder film was the epitome of, of the innocent bystander watching and videotaping and, and creating um, those uh, real-life moments of newsworthy events. And there was litigation over it, and Josh, I'll let you talk about that specialty, but it raises the issue of fair use where you have the debate as to whether capturing the moment of a newsworthy event and reporting on it in, in newsworthy timeliness, which was a little different than what the litigation was about because that was a book later on, but um, it, it, where did you draw the line that it's news and therefore I should get it versus, hey, I'm the one who did this and I should be giving you credit for this. And so, I mean, Josh, why don't you talk a little bit about the litigation on the we can get our news perspective. Yeah, <laughs> what's interesting about Zap Ruder is he really had an opinion that said, this is um, the only video we have. This is the only way we were, anyone was going to see this. This was a one-time event. Um, and so they, they did say that um, under those circumstances, using it would be okay. Um, but when you look at later cases, if you look at the LA News Service cases, which there are a series of them in the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit pulls back from that event and says, wait, 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 wait. There's people who make money doing this news reporting. People need to, and they make money licensing it. Um, and so in those cases, the courts actually found no fair use in kind of similar circumstances. Someone was on the scene, here's our, here's our video, um, we've, got, we've got the content. Um, and we're seeing in fair use sort of this, this tension between if it's ephemeral, if it's you know of the moment, um, if you're not putting it online, which is the big issue for a lot of news agencies, is it's not just the evening news; it's perpetual, and that sort of is treated differently. Um, courts are less likely to find that to be a fair use purpose. Um, if it, or if it's more likely to be a fair use purpose, if it's for perpetual, if it's the whole thing, if it's a mass distribution, you're making money off of it. Courts tend to start to say, well, maybe we should be paying you for this. Um, but it's a very, especially in the news um, industry, it's a very difficult um, um, uh, calculus to make because we want the news to be able to tell us what's going on. I mean, going back to the First Amendment, which you know, I know uh, uh, you were, we started with, it is fair use and the idea expression dichotomy that provide First Amendment protections in copyright law. And so you, in order to have that robust discussion, commentary, criticism, news reporting, you have to find room for those things. It's, it's a very complicated um, situation, especially for news agencies who are now not just news, but creating the destination platform. Well, this is the best one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we simply, don't, we simply uh, try to just use um, photographs for that Zucruder film. We know it's very litigious and it's hard to deal with. So, um, we just try to do the best efforts to just use, you know, avail ourselves with content from different stock agencies and just use photos to tell the story. I'm curious, um, you know, in the in the field of law that I work on in, in the First Amendment, you know, we're seeing um, different uh, forms of um, news now, moving from sort of big news companies like Veronica's to bloggers and, and other people who are just individuals spreading the news. Um, and there are questions about how um, certain legal doctrines apply in this new context. And are you seeing that also? And questions come up around that? There's the different um, types of you know, news agents and individuals who are out there now. I'll tell you what my son, who thinks he's a YouTube blogger, says. He goes, WTFU, where is the fair use? Yes, that doesn't mean something else. Um, and, and it's interesting that this generation of, uh, I would say, like teenagers and tweens and things like that, 20-year-olds, um, think that if they're not charging money, they can use it. And, and there's a lot of these um, YouTubers and people out there who are making
very popular videos that, that are getting monetized on YouTube and otherwise. And they're not quite understanding what's okay and what's not. And I remember when Napster was going on in 2000, people didn't think that copying music was bad. And part of the reason why they didn't think it was bad is because why should I pay $20 for a song to get you know three minutes of music? That seems outrageous. When um, iTunes started making it so you could buy the song for 99 cents, and they shut down Napster pretty loudly, and um, they started making it so that way the price point was more realistic and they started advertising that you know, you're going to lose all these things. Um, it changed people's attitudes a little bit, but you still have that stark dichotomy that the internet should be free and I should be able to use whatever I want from the internet for free. Um, you know, we were discussing this yesterday and Josh, I mean, do, you, do you seem to think that maybe there might be an inflection point in our youth? Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, I think two things. I think you're absolutely right about the change in the market for music. You know, the music companies and um, all the other players in the music industry are reacting to that and trying to provide music in the way that people want to get it. So that's certainly one part of it. Um, I also think that YouTubers and bloggers are getting smarter. You know, at one point it was, oh, I'm going to do whatever I want. But some of them are growing up and they're realizing, oh, I make money from this. Um, I need to do the same kind of clearance that I expect other people to do with my content, and that's another one. But what I find most interesting is, you know, we were in a time where, especially in the Napster case, where people saw, oh, these, you know, the big bad music um, record labels, you know, God forbid they want to make money, um, you know, there's this, why should I pay these, you know, people out there who I don't know, and we moved away from the author and making sure that the people who are creating content are getting um, paid for it and incentivized to do more of it. The, this generation of YouTubers and um, people using social media has created, I think, I hope, um, a generation where they know the authors. They feel like they're their friends. They watch them every week or on, or on Twitter every day or every hour. Um, and they, there's a much closer relationship between the person consuming the content and the person creating it. My hope is that as that um, relationship continues and people grow up um, with these with this content, that they come back to the the, um, the world in which we think copyright has an important purpose in incentivizing these people to be able to do what they do. Um, a lot of YouTubers can now make enough money to survive just on their content creation. They're not also waiting tables and they're not also doing other things. But if you, if their videos can be taken from one platform and put on another one where they can't monetize them, which um, some of them call uh, freebooting, that's a uh, Brady Heron came up with that. He's a well-known uh, YouTuber going back to the educational videos they started with. He does a lot of the educational videos. Um, freebooting it in that way, they lose their monetization. So there's a lot of conversation among that community saying this is a bad thing. We, you know, how do I stop this? Oh, Congress there for that. And then their frustration with, oh, but how do I do DMCA notices? I'm not, you know, a big content company. I don't have the, the, the facility to use the DMCA to take all of this down. What do I do? And so the hope I have is that the system will sort of readjust after many years of being off kilter to really address um, these creators who need copyright to protect their interests and allow them to have a life. So speaking of monetization of social media content, um, what about companies like Junkin Media? And uh, how? Yes. So uh, how do they fit into this picture? Are they helpful? Are they not? Who would like to start? <laughs> well, so much to start with who they are. I would say it's Josh. Well, why don't you explain what they do? Okay. And then I will explain the difference between a troll and an honor. <laughs> and then we'll have the commercial application. <laughs> so what happens nowadays is there will be a, a video that goes viral and you know it may not be a YouTube the person who does it professionally, maybe it's just a one-off video. And at first companies will call just directly contact that person. And actually let's let's just go back to the beginning of the slide so I can show just an example of that of sort of a non-junkin media example. Oops. Uh oh lost it. Oh, okay. So do there we go. There we go. So this was a, this was a um, this was a play that 
that caught on fire. Um, everyone survived, don't worry. But it caught on fire, and another plane was coming in, and people who were on the plane were taking photos of it and then posting them on Twitter. And then um, news agencies started contacting them, saying, hey, can we use your photo? This happens every day. All, all going on in the background, you may not even be aware of it, but this happens all the time. So these people started getting a couple of requests, a couple more, a lot more. Um, and they come in different forms. So some of these are just, hey, here's us, we want to use it. Some of them are, you know, a little more detailed, like the Associated Press, which actually has an image of a huge license and says, confirm that you agree to all these very stringent licensing terms, but protects them, protects them. I mean, there's a benefit to that. Some are a little more, you know, they have some of that contractual language, or they use a um, service called um, uh, Captate that you go in and you click and you confirm that you'll give the permission, and then the system notes that in their content management system. So that's what can happen in a normal case, where you just contact the person who posted it, you're pretty sure they are the ones who actually originated the content, and you're done. Um, what happens is we get to something like Junkin Media, and what they do is come in and say, well, wait, we actually can help you make money on this. So license to us, give us your, your, um, your rights to sort of go out. And we will tell everyone who wants to use this, yes, you may, but you have to pay an amount of money. And you'll get a cut of it, and we'll get a cut of it. But you don't have to pay the other Right, right, I'm sorry. The ones who are using the, the photograph have to, have, to, have to pay. So so this is the middleman. And on the one hand, it's argued that <coughs> let's agencies like ABC have a simple clearance place they go to. They know they got the clearance, they got the right do it. On the other hand, people call them copyright trolls, um, evil people who come in between and manipulate people's rights and, and are, are sponging off of the, the real authors and things like that. And I, what, what I want to discuss is sort of like the difference between a troll and a helpful mediator. Um, in copyright law, we've had helpful mediators forever. Um, I was joking about Michael before, he represents BMI. Um, uh, they would consider themselves a helpful mediator to help let artists who would not otherwise have collective power get compensation for people playing their music. Um, some people say, I, I don't really want to have to deal with it at my bar, but they still have to deal with it. Um, we have this trouble in IP across the board. I deal a lot with it on the patent side, where it used to be in the 90s, those quote, helpful mediators were the contingency fee lawyers who would have to bring the case for the individual, and it would just be very hard and burdensome beyond them. Whether you have a law firm do it, or whether you set up an organization that does it instead of the law firm, I frankly don't see much difference in that. I think that the real difference between a troll with the pointy ears and the pointy nose and the long fingernails and the pointy hat that holds out its hand and says, give me my tithes across the bridge I don't own, is the behavior. And when you're talking about whether they're doing it appropriately or inappropriately, that's when the pejorative term is more appropriate rather than as a helpful mediator. And um, there's been a lot of issues about behavior. And maybe you want to go to the Malibu slide for a second. And it, 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 that when people act poorly, they shouldn't be tolerated, whether they're a mediator, the owner, or uh, infringer. Bad behavior is bad. Good behavior is good. Enforcing people's rights legitimately is good. Enforcing people's rights illegitimately is bad. And that a lot of people have confused copyright or patent law or whatever the, the law is with the fact that there are bad actors that act in it. And Malibu is an example of uh, arguably a bad actor who's been sanctioned for trying to use extortion where um, they make pornographic films. And if you, um, what they do is they look for people with who have downloaded their films, they take their IP addresses, they bring a lawsuit in a district court, 
against John Doe's having IP addresses with 100 John Doe's or 30 John Doe's in it, and then seek a subpoena from the internet provider to say whose IP address it is, and then tell the uh, unlucky slop whose IP address it is that if you don't give us $4,000, we're going to sue you and embarrass you and let the world know that you download porn. And so they are, they have been accused of misusing the court systems to extort money, not because they're enforcing their IP, but because they're trying to say, you know, we're going to use the court systems to make you pay for things just so you won't be embarrassed, whether it's true or not. And so when you get into bad behavior, that's what's bad. But, you know, the, the step that I want to go back to for ABC is, do you find people like Junkin Media and um, the other mediators as helpful mediators or just attacks on the system? Uh, no, they can be very helpful, especially in situations like uh, when you can't uh, get access or speak with the poster immediately because they're on the plane or something that happens. So having an agency that represents um, these content is just makes it easier, especially since since we work in a very you know fast-paced environment. From the uh, financial standpoint, uh, it becomes a little more difficult, and I think it creates a barrier. Um, it's easier for us to deal with Joe Smith as opposed to a company such as Junkin Media, whichever company out there. We can um, speak with a person and get you know, broad rights so that we don't have to continue to clear that content all the time, so that can limited um, usage of it, but if we have to deal with a company, obviously they are in the business to make money, and they will not allow such a broad usage, so if you use it once, you'll probably have to pay for that usage. There are other companies that allow you to use it unlimited, perpetually, but obviously there is a, a higher fee attached to that. So, um, in a nutshell, I think for us, it makes it easier dealing with a poster directly, you know? Um, and after that, you know, we can, if that's not possible, we can contact the, the agency directly. The problem what happens is, sometimes any company can get permission from someone. Um, but these companies, these viral media companies are like really, really good at trying to catch all these viral videos. And let's say a company goes and clears a video, two hours later, that video is being represented by the agency. So unless you have proper documentation of the clearance, you may be in a pickle if you, you know, if you didn't get it. So um, it's very important to just make sure that when you clear through the poster first, you have an actual license or documentation that indicates permission. Otherwise, these agencies can really go very hard after you to try to get, um, you know, future licenses and um, or. If you want to use it again, you know, just to pay another fee down the line. Um, we've been focusing on IP issues that have come up around uh, viral videos, but are there other issues that come up in your work um, as uh, it relates to viral videos? For example, concerns about privacy or privacy or other laws um, for us for news. Again, it's just basically trying to make sure that whatever we see out there is actually. It is what it's supposed to be. So we are talking about an earthquake in Haiti, you know, and the poster was from the Dominican Republic. So there are ways that you can actually track now that you can track the photos to, to make sure that that photo actually relates to that particular, you know, um, event. Um, or if you were talking about a, I don't know, a storm or something. Sometimes, unfortunately, it has happened. You see it in the news, and some news outlets may take a 2007 photograph to report something that happened in 2016. And then, unfortunately, um, not ABC. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but um, do you see it out there? And, you know, it just really takes a toll to the reputation of a company. So we have to always, as journalists, make sure that is, you know, we're always accurate, that we have balance on whatever that we are clearing, that we are actually checking the facts 
checking to make sure that that's the actual photo, that this person actually owned it, that nothing has been staged. So there are so many more questions than just about clearing a photograph. When we clear a photograph, first thing we have to ask someone is, did you shoot the photo? Did you shoot the video? Because again, if we go through social media and you ask someone, can I use your video? They will likely say yes, but then you will get another claim from someone explaining that that, that video actually belonged to them. So, so it's a many factors that we have to account to before we can actually repeat or something. You know, when you, when you go into YouTube or, or Facebook, the grounds for takedown go way beyond copyright. And um, they can go into trademarks, they can go into privacy, they can go into uh, personal, uh, showing my images. Uh, there are uh, changes every day to those, those forms that drive me crazy. Um, but um, when it's not a newsworthy event, but it's an entertainment event, it becomes much more important and more difficult. And, you know, particularly when you get into viral things that go around the world, the law is different in the United States than it is in France, than it is in Canada, than it is in China, than it is in Korea. The, 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 the rules change and, and, and how you deal with it changes a lot. And um, that, that does get to be a, a very difficult issue. And, you know, something that has a European touch and goes into France, you all of a sudden have rights issues. And when um, ABC edits the video down and shows them a minute, did you just destroy my normal rights? Because it's meant to be seen as a whole, not separately, and things like that. So you do get into um, other types of issues that go into it. And um, you know, the notice and takedown system is a really important thing that goes way beyond copyright law, even though it was built for
you may not have been planning to get any money out of this, but we can help you with that. Or does the person say, look, I just took this video and I'd like to make some money contact you? You know, I don't, I think if you, I mean, I think the answer more often than not is you can contact them two hours later and they're just quick to get it. But I'm not sure that your assumption is correct in copyright law. I think that ever since the Rodney King videos were publicized, that most people take out their camera because they think they can sell the image, even when they don't. I mean, I think, I, I think that a lot of people really, really do that. I mean, I remember um, after like when the O.J. Simpson trial was going on and all that sort of stuff, it was amazing how many taxi drivers would come to me and ask me, oh, you're a lawyer, what do you think about that? A lot of these popular publicized events, you know, the Bronco chase from O.J. Simpson, things like that, results in the public being much more social media savvy on that stuff. And copyright law wants people to disclose. Even if they might have taken the photo anyhow, it doesn't mean they would have shared the photo. It doesn't mean they would have let other people share the photo without the economic incentive. Although your Las Vegas runway There are people that will do that, but that doesn't mean that we don't want an IP system that fosters the ability for people to disseminate information and expression and, and their intellectual development on that stuff. The fact that patents are more expensive to get doesn't mean that copyrights are less valuable for people to have. Well, and two other things. One is money is not the only, re only benefit that you get from the system. The people who posted the photos of the airplane certainly wanted more people looking at their uh, Twitter profile. They got benefits from that that may not have been direct financial compensation, but the, you know, everyone with the Twitter profile wants people to read that, and they, a lot of them want to be thought of as you know, either thought leaders or funny or whatever it is. The other issue um, with, with the, uh, the question you raise is, you know, we got rid of formal, uh, formalities in the United States um, you, know, you used to have to have a notice, you don't have to have a notice anymore, you used to have to register, you don't have to register anymore. And so what's happened is there are a lot more people who, are, um, who have copyrights that they can enforce. Um, it's changed a little bit how that works. If you, had, if you were still living in a system where you had to have formalities, I think you'd have fewer um, people still owning their copyrights. So they'd be giving, they'd be doing things like this and not thinking, oh, I should have a copyright for this. Um, we don't live in that world. Burns, the Burn Convention, which required us to get rid of um, our formalities, is not going away anytime soon. So I think we're just going to live in a world where we're all copyright holders. Congratulations. Yeah, for an awful long time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting because if you look at the Supreme Court's case in Petrella, um, you know, it's the Raging Bull case, uh, where they allowed uh, Frank Petrella's widow to come back and sort of claw back her copyrights after sitting on them for 30 years. By the way, a truly horrible case. We represent First Quality in the SCA case, and hopefully they multiply it in patent law. But um, it just shows that you know people inure their rights and copyrights forever, it seems, or at least a lifetime. And you know we had. Congress passed laws to let Mickey Mouse's copyright go just a little bit longer, right? And that sort of stuff. And, you know, just because you may be stupid in the first five minutes of your creation doesn't mean you should pay the price for the rest of your life on that. So, I don't know if that makes a difference with you or not, but that would be my take on it. Yeah, the great example of that is the Night of the Living Dead video. Zombie movie started this whole zombie um, movement. Didn't have a copyright notice when it went out in theaters, and it's there a lot of people believe it is in the public domain. And so you can find it on YouTube and people use it. Um, that was a loss. Those creators were really uh, frustrated by the fact that it has become so popular and it, the foundation for so much that they don't get any royalties on it at all. And that was just, whoops, we didn't have copyright rights. I, I'm an author, I write lots of alerts, I actually have a book published, and I get ripped off all the time on my alerts, they get republished. For me, it's free advertisement, so 
I'm not really selling on it. I represent people that do blogs. When they get ripped off, it means they don't have eyeballs. When they don't have eyeballs, they don't have revenue. And it's, it's a very serious issue for them. And they're, you know, for me, it's different because I have a different purpose on why I'm doing it. And, you know, we still want copyright law out there to inspire the bloggers to blog because we want to see what they have to say, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Any other questions from the audience? I'm interested in um, if you could make one or two changes to the laws right now to, to clarify the laws and make things um, easier for your practice, what, what would it be? Well, this isn't related, I'll, I'll, I'll come to something related to this topic, but the thing that I'm most interested in right now in copyright legislation is actually copyright office modernization. Um, completely off topic, but it is absolutely the thing I'm most interested in. Um, the idea that the copyright office, which was built um, at the turn of the century, um, is still doing things in paper um, that shouldn't be and creating system that works for us. That's what I'm most interested in legislatively. Um, related to that, though, and does touch on, on this is you know one of the things that the modernized copyright office can do is better hook um, video creation or social media creation into that system because you could have um, application programming interfaces APIs where I'm taking a photo I'm uploading it to Twitter and I'm also registering it with the copyright office and really creating a robust database of copyright information and protection. Um, that's something that is very far down the road but among the many things that a modernized copyright office could do would be to provide greater clarity on who owns what. Um, you'd be saying to a government agency under the penalty of perjury, I own this, um, and here's what's in it. Uh, photographers already do that because if you're a press photographer, you are required to say, here's what the event was, and the date, and I took it, and here's what's in it, and da um, But other people could do that too very, very easily. And uh, the idea of having a database like that actually could be for clearance, which the Copyright Office database really isn't now, would be great. Um, so, Copyright Office modernization, yay! Except for their own students. Except for their own content, it should be paid for at the highest price. <laughs> I mean, I find it a problem that the copyright term for a tweet as a copyright term for Raging Bull as it is for some musical song. I, I mean, I find the one-size-fits-all view of IP law to not match the reality of what's being protected. And I struggle with it on the patent side, I struggle with it on the, on the copyright side. I struggle with it particularly with I always thought that there should be a soft right, which is a different right than copyright and a different right than patent rights. That was somewhere in between the last maybe 15 years or something like that. To encourage, record, send, and do all the things. And I fully endorse improving the copyright office's computers. Getting, knowing what is copyrighted is impossible. It is impossible, it's very difficult. On just because you referenced the software point, um, so on the last panel, Michael was talking about um, the Cisco Arista case where he's representing Arista, um, I'm representing Cisco, and um, it's an interesting point because you were saying about software. Oh, you know, maybe they don't need as long protection, but in that case, this has been using the same command-line expressions for a long time, um, and they're continuing to benefit from them. And uh, clearly, Arista thought that it was better to use them because it did when no one else could use it. So there are some, I think that you're right, software is a little bit different because it does change so quickly. But there are some of these um, software platforms and software that have been created that are so important or so revolutionary that everyone um, sees the value in them. So I, I, I struggle with it too. And I don't know. Software is reason why you want it shorter. Well, because it's a fundamental element that we want people to build on. I mean, the issue is, the whole issue in IP law is it's a trade. 
we want you to tell us your intellectual property. We'll reward you with a limited monopoly. A monopoly of patent laws. Years from filing a monopoly in copyright law is on the years on that sort of stuff. How much of a monopoly do you need to get in order to get someone to disclose? Which is where the professor began with the distinction between the non-practicing entities and the That's a tough question. I mean, at some point, even though it is a great contribution that they gave, did they reap the benefits that they're entitled to for the public disclosure? Or do they still need to reap the benefit for it? Otherwise, there wouldn't be a public disclosure next year as to some new expression in the computer program. Well, it's interesting because in patent law, the patents are written so broadly that you really do have a monopoly over some, some process or some compound. In copyright, because it only protects my expression and only if you copy it, if you do your own thing that looks exactly the same but it was independently created, that's totally okay under copyright law. If you create your own thing that is uh, uh, causes the same functionality but is written in a different way, that's okay under copyright law. So because it's a softer doctrine in terms of how protective it can be, I have less concerns with it than I do with patent law where you're right you could lock up um, a fundamental process of a, a, a computer program for 20 years. You know, some people do continue to make money on that, and they do want to um, protect their R&D investment. But it is—it's a very—I find that a very challenging uh, question in the law. We have any other questions from the audience? Um. One question I had is um, when somebody posts a video on YouTube uh, under fair use and um, they expect it to be treated as fair use and then it gets, let's say, pre-booted by someone else and they start monetizing that video, could the original fair user um, somehow become liable or have a responsibility for this fair use product having become something that the company uh, didn't intend to have it. So the question is, if I post something and I rely on fair use to allow me to do so, so I'm using someone else's content and I'm saying my new thing is fair use, what happens if someone else then steals what I did and monetizes it? So it's interesting, there was a case recently in the Second Circuit that actually held that you can hold a copyright in something that is a fair use. So you could go after, if your thing wasn't fair use, you could still go after the people who are monetizing it if you were not happy with that. If you're happy to have it distributed, though, copyright does require it to be you making the reproductions or the distributions. Um, what I will say, though, is what can happen is a copyright owner might see this proliferation and go, hey, wait a minute, there's an issue here. You know, it was probably when it was your non-commercial use. A lot of copyright holders, once it goes over into commercial, um, feel much more protective of their rights, and so they certainly would probably go after the person now commercializing it, but that may end up getting, um, having them come after you, and then you have a conversation about, is that really fair use, or are you just saying it's fair use? So, I, you know, it's certainly a concern, but when you really have fair use, you know, really strongly, you know, this is really fair use, you don't want to find it. Can we get in one more question? Um, I have a question about the copyright misuse doctrine and respect to in the field of uh, software, computer software, and um, maybe it would tie into this earlier panel about licensing. So would you please comment on that? Sure. So in um, patent law, they developed a doctrine called patent misuse. Uh, Morgan Salt was the Supreme Court case that announced it, and it was sort of brought over copyright law in the language called decision. Basically, in copyright law, it is a combination of unclean hands and antitrust, really looking at anti-competitive behavior. Um, it, isn't, it doesn't come up as frequently as you think in copyright. Usually, it deals with licensing issues, where I'm asking you to um, agree to license my copyrighted work and then extend that over to something else in a time situation. Um, what people have tried to do is make it more of a public policy type of copyright misuse. You know, everything that you, that I do is great, everything you do is not. Um, the courts have not been as receptive to that. 
Um, but certainly, antitrust issues do come up in copyright law. It's just, as I said, harder because it's not as um, proving a monopoly, uh, a uh, market power, is much more difficult because you could do it any number of other ways, as opposed to patent law, where really you might only be able to do it the way that I have patent. But it's a great question and one that people are struggling with now. All right, well, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us.